From PRX's Radiotopia, this is the Memory Palace. I'm Nate DeMeo. Welcome to the first episode of the summer season, a season brought to you by Squarespace, who is literally making this new era of the Memory Palace possible. Squarespace is your all-in-one website platform. You may not know a thing about making a website. You may be kind of terrible at computers, but Squarespace makes it easy for you, for anyone, to make a great-looking site, regardless of skill level. No coding required, just intuitive, easy-to-use controls. And under the hood, Squarespace has state-of-the-art technology keeping your site running smoothly and securely. Starts at 8 bucks a month. Start your free trial site today with no credit card required at squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code MEMORY to get 10% off your first purchase. That's squarespace.com. Use offer code MEMORY. Squarespace, build it beautiful. Squarespace, literally keeping the metaphorical lights on here at the Memory Palace all summer long. And uh, speaking of summer, Seattle, Portland, Los Angeles, I am coming to your town well, I am already in your town, Los Angeles, but I've got live shows coming up on August 7th at the Vera Project in Seattle, on the 8th at Mississippi Studios in Portland, and on uh, the 11th of September at the Masonic Hall at the beautiful Hollywood Forever Cemetery, uh, where my daughter has been learning to ride her bike, incidentally. Uh, check out the memorypalace.us for links, for tickets, and uh, come see a show. And uh, now here's episode 66, The Pirate Queen. This is the Memory Palace. I'm Nate DeMeo. Neither of them slept. Helen Kelly couldn't. She was up all night, staring at the ceiling, wishing her husband weren't dead, worrying about her 19-year-old daughter, Eugenia, and about the million dollars. Eugenia Kelly was up all night with the Tango Pirate. Her mother knew it because Eugenia flaunted it. And what Helen Kelly knew would have kept any mother up in 1915, because she'd read about this sort of thing in the paper. There was a plague upon the land. It had started amongst the lower classes, among the immigrants streaming into New York like pestilent rats down a gangplank. And no one was entirely immune. And some, the weak-willed, women, girls, were dangerously susceptible. Because on its face, this dancing, was so innocent. Who didn't enjoy it in the proper circumstances? At a ball, at a gala for the Metropolitan Museum, say. But this was not the dancing that had taken hold of the city. Cabarets were suddenly everywhere. Not just in the working class neighborhoods, not just in darkest Harlem or Chinatown, or amidst the teeming tenements of the Lower East Side. They were spreading uptown to respectable neighborhoods. Cafes with dance floors and liquor licenses right on Broadway where anyone who could afford to could just dance. No invitation, no place in the social register required. It was outrageous. And people were dancing in the daytime at things called tango teas, where women, girls even, could pay money to dance with men, to tango cheek to cheek with men who knew how to tango. There was a name for these men, tango pirates. These men who were paid to dance, paid to lead. And I'm not gonna say it out loud, but I think we both know where this sort of thing can lead. How did it start for Eugenia Kelly? How does it ever start? The look, the smile from the end of the bar. You're looking at someone on the dance floor and all of a sudden they look up. They see you looking. They don't look away. 
His name was Al Davis. He was handsome, and he could dance. He was one of those men from the articles, a professional. He danced in vaudeville shows with his partner, the beautiful Bonnie Glass. And then for a fee at a tango tea, he'd dance with you. And so he danced with Eugenia Kelly. She was not beautiful. Or if she was, it was in a way that is hard to capture in a photograph, or maybe doesn't translate now, a hundred years later. But she was sharp, and sharply dressed, and self-possessed, and seemed somehow special to Al Davis. And so he asked her if she wanted to keep dancing. It's a familiar story, maybe even personally familiar in its way. But let me assure you, this was something new in America. The idea that men and women could go out at night, could bar hop, could flirt and dance and drink, could make out in the booth at the corner, could close the place down, could laugh and smoke and hear just the funniest story from this one girl while waiting online for the bathroom. This was all new. The idea that a low-born man like Al Davis could meet a high-born young woman like Eugenia Kelly at all, never mind woo her, simply because he really knew how to wear a suit, because he had moves. That was new. But a sleepless mother, a sleepless mother was not. Helen Kelly's 19-year-old daughter was out all night, every night. The girl would sleep all day. She'd show up to family functions, to society events, hungover. She had been a good girl, sweet, obedient. And now all of a sudden, who was she? And when her mother would confront her, when her mother, red-faced and tear-streaked, would remind her of their family's standing, of the importance of decorum, of womanly virtue. Eugenia would say she was 19. She wasn't a little girl anymore, mother. Things were different now. The world was changing, everything was new and thrilling. And it wasn't her fault her mother's life was so boring and sheltered and unfun. And anyway, she didn't know Al. She couldn't judge him. And Eugenia Kelly would put on her lipstick put on some scandalously short dress that crept above her ankles. And her mother would cry, would shout down from the top of the stairs as her daughter stepped through the door of their brownstone and into the night. There was nothing she could do about it. On one of these nights, Eugenia was at a restaurant in Penn Station, a place that had always been open all hours for travelers and graveyard shifters, but was all of a sudden inundated with new patrons. These new people out reinventing the nighttime. So picture one of them throwing her head back, laughing, her wavy hair pinned up beneath some fabulous hat, smoke curling up from the end of a dwindling cigarette at the end of a silver holder held between slender fingers. And picture her surprise when two men in suits approach the table and arrest her and explain that there was indeed something her mother could do about it. A woman like Helen Kelly a woman of means, whose deceased husband had been a respected banker, whose grandfather had parlayed a job as a purchaser for the federal government during the Civil War into a fortune. A woman like that would have no problem getting a judge to issue an arrest warrant, especially when her lawyer laid out the dangers. Some of them were self-evident. A 19-year-old girl, out after midnight, dancing, slam dunk case right there. But add new information that had come to light about this Al Davis. He was a married man. A married man who had eschewed gainful employment, 
in order to escort an impressionable young woman into the city's dark corners. A man who'd been seen wearing fine jewelry, expensive ties, all purchased by that same young woman. A young woman, he might add, who was set on her 21st birthday to inherit a million dollars. The story hit the papers. All the papers. And by the morning of May 22, 1915, when Eugenia Kelly and her lawyer arrived at the courthouse in Manhattan's Upper East Side, the sound of her heels clacking up its marble steps was lost amidst the shouting, the clicking cameras, the barking reporters, the entreaties from fans reaching out with pens and autograph books and grasping hands, the yawping cops keeping them all at bay. But we can pull in close and see her there as she ascends the stairs. The green wool suit, the red necktie and the white silk shirt with the loose rolling collar, her hair up beneath one of those fabulous hats, this one tri-cornered and brimless in black and stuck with a yellow rose. See her smile. See her unbowed by the shouts and the hands and the fact that she was about to face her own mother in court. And see Helen Kelly on the witness stand in a black dress, severe and high-necked, some old-world white lace just beneath her chin, looking like she might as well be a million years old. As she spoke of her daughter, so sweet, so good, so recently, and how her little girl seemed to disappear overnight, only to be replaced by this wanton wildling. Mrs. Kelly played her hand well, for while not every parent had a child who seemed about to blow her trust fund on an untrustworthy scoundrel, Every parent had a child. And in a city frightened by tales of tango pirates, scandalized by stories of inconceivable midnights, someone had to take a stand. Someone had to think of the children. These kids with their dancing, with their hi-fis, with their rap music, with their selfie sticks. There was only one solution. Eugenia Kelly had to be locked up. She had to be physically separated from this lifestyle before she became depraved, or worse. Then Eugenia took the stand. Her mother's lawyer said she was too nice a girl to be hauled into the court this way, to have her name daily blemished by this notoriety. And besides, she was breaking her poor mother's heart. He offered her an out. Say you're done with that man. Say you're done with that crowd. Say you'll come home, and we can all go home. Eugenia was having none of it. She would not go home to her mother. She would not break ties with Al Davis. She would not apologize when she had nothing on earth to apologize for. And besides, she was 19. She was an adult, and there was no law that can lock her up. There was only one way this could end. But it turned out she was wrong. Not about the law, the case was a joke. But there was a twist still to come. On the third day of the trial, Eugenia Kelly said she had spoken with her mother and she had changed her mind. She didn't exactly say what had changed it, but the papers wrote of a lengthy negotiation between mother and daughter, their respective lawyers, and several Catholic priests. Money was certainly discussed. And so Eugenia told her mother that she would turn her back on her former life, cut ties to the tango pirate, and in turn her mother agreed to drop the charges. She stood up and told the courtroom, I realize now that I was dazzled by the glamour of the white lights and the music and the dancing of Broadway. And though the case was over, it was certainly not closed. 
because the judge had a thing or two to tell Eugenia about propriety, about morality, about the duty of good girls from fine families. I can remember, he intoned, as a young man that your grandfather stood so high in this community that when men passed him in the streets, they lifted their hats out of respect to him. Your father was a high type of man and one of the city's best citizens. I'm afraid you have acted a little foolishly. The best friend you have is your mother. Sometimes we may disagree as to what a mother says, but... We can't know precisely what she was thinking as she stood there in the courtroom and took it for a long time and how it felt to have her life become an object lesson for fearful parents, and how it felt to realize that hers was the name put on a new way of life, on a new type of girl, or how it felt to be publicly shamed by the state when she herself felt no shame. We can't know how it felt to be that girl, but we know that after the trial, she went west on a train with her mother, putting miles between her and her old life. Her mother thought it would be a nice change, and we can picture her there, in their private car, prairie rolling past. Her mother sitting there with a satisfied smile as she sipped tea, stitched her sampler, read a magazine. We can picture Eugenia staring out at distant hills turned golden by the late afternoon light. We can wonder where she was while she was there on that train. Cheek pressed against the warm window, which cafe? Which dance floor? We could wonder what she remembered. Which tango? Which drink? Which joke that lit up the eyes of which fabulous friend? What did she remember of Al? Of his smile? Of his smell? Of the way he moved? Of his lips? Of the feel of his hand on her back as he led her across the floor? Or of his hand in her hand as he led her to the bed? We can picture her mother, too, a month or so later, as they made their way back east, moving from fine resort to fine resort. Picture her looking out at the vast front porch of the Grand Hotel, a white Queen Anne palace overlooking Lake Huron from a green bluff on Mackinac Island. Picture her smiling to herself as she watched Eugenia strolling the manicured lawn with its croquet courts and topiary animals. The girl was better now. It had taken some time, but she was back to herself. Her little girl, they, they were back to themselves. They were chums again. That's how Helen Kelly would characterize the state of their relationship during their Michigan stay, when speaking with a newspaper man, not long after everything fell apart all over again. The change came overnight, she said. One day they were good, then the next Eugenia was withdrawn. She wouldn't open up. Later Helen found out why. Al Davis, had followed them to Mackinac Island, hunting her daughter. And when they returned to New York, it was clear he had landed his prey. Because barely had their servants unpacked their bags when Helen and Eugenia Kelly were shouting again. And Eugenia was seen at Murray's restaurant with the Tango Pirate. And though, to his great credit, in Helen's eyes, the manager kicked them out and hustled them through the dining room past the gawking crowd of scandalized diners. The papers the next morning said that Eugenie was shameless and smiling. The papers later said that Al Davis's wife was filing for divorce and that Davis himself was suing Helen Kelly for defamation and that she was suing him in turn for something else. It was hard to keep track. The three of them 
the mother, the daughter, the tango pirate, were in the papers all the time. And so everyone knew it was coming, could even crowd around the entrance to the Kelly's brownstone, could even be there when Al Davis rolled up in his car one morning, his divorce papers in hand, and watch as Eugenia Kelly walked out through the front door and down the steps and into his arms. They could even hear her mother crying. Eugenia Kelly became Eugenia Davis on November 17, 1915. Just five months after swearing to a judge, she was done with the lights and the music and the dancing. There were more lawsuits, more sniping between mother and daughter and now husband. But nothing could stop love. At least not until Eugenia turned 21 and the money came. She was 26 when she filed for divorce. She said Al Davis had treated her very well for five years, then started to neglect her. And thus ends the tale of the Tango Pirate. A few years later, Eugenia married a Peruvian diplomat. Seems like a nice enough guy. She had a daughter, sent her off to the finest finishing schools, debuted her at a society luncheon in the North Balcony of the Pierre Hotel, married her off to a boy from a fine family. Had Helen Kelly lived to see it, she would have been proud. I'd like to think she would have appreciated the irony. But what of Eugenia Kelly? What did she think? As she watched her good girl marry the right kind of boy. Relief? Envy? Maybe. Regret? Pity? Maybe. What had she told her daughter about her own mother? About the trial? about the tears, about the tango pirate, about how for a while there, she was not just that type of girl, she was the first one, about how for a while there, she danced. But she wouldn't understand, kids these days. <laughs>